Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I am Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I am excited to talk with Malka rapport Hovav today about lexical semantics. Welcome to the show, Malka. So Malka rapport Hovav holds the Henya Sheriff Chair in Humanities at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and is a member of the Department of Linguistics and the Center for Logic, Language, and Cognition. Her research focuses on lexical representation and its relation to conceptual structure and morphosyntactic realization. So if that doesn't really make sense, hopefully by the end of this podcast, you will know what all of that means, more or less. So um, I wanted to start out just asking a broad question about what is the field of lexical semantics. And in, in particular, what does it mean to be, you know, for, to, to talk about lexical semantics rather than semantics proper? Okay, well, if we, you know, break down lexical semantics into its components, so lexical means word, right, it refers to having to do with words, and semantics is semantics, um, there really shouldn't be a distinction between lexical semantics um, and other types of semantics. Lexical semantics is just one subfield of semantics. Um, and if you may, lexical semantics deals with the contribution the semantic contribution of words to the semantic representation of sentences as a whole. So if we know what a sentence means, we know what it means by virtue, partly, right, of uh, what the words in the sentence means. And I say only partly because you also need to know the structure of the sentence in order to know what the sentence means. Just having knowledge of what the words means will not give you the meaning of a sentence. Um, and so, you know, you, many people think naively that a sentence really just contains words only, but sentences contain words and structure and different sentences with the same word, with the same words, but different structure um, can have radically different meanings. Um, before the development of formal semantics, there really wasn't any distinction between semantics and lexical semantics. Lexical semantics was semantics. I mean, in fact, in early work on generative grammar, generative grammar is the framework within which I do most of uh, my research. Um, so there were researchers like Jerry Katz and Paul Postel who were the first uh, people within generative grammar to deal with uh, semantics, and they dealt mostly with lexical semantics. But um, in the 1970s, um, what became dominant in semantics was uh, formal semantics. And that's a field of study which grew out of uh, the tradition of logic and philosophy and math. And the focus was mainly on logical connectives and the like, like and or or, or uh, word quantifier words like all, every, some. These have a lot of logical import. Or the semantics associated with functional categories like tense or aspect or definiteness. Now, if you take all of these things out, what's left? Well, what's left is what we somehow almost intuitively think as the semantics of words, mainly that part of the meanings of sentences which bear the main conceptual content, right? So, you know, I can say, um, I don't know, uh, uh, the dog will enter the room, the dog entered the room, the dog has entered the room. And these are all in some sense, variations on the theme, 
where the content of the message is in the words dog, enter, and room. And lexical semanticists uh, typically focus mainly right, on the contribution of the conceptual content of, you know, words. There are other technical ways of uh, referring to them, but in any minute, things like words that have this conceptual content, like dog, enter, or room. I hope right. that I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So so basically then if we if we have this sentence like the dog will enter the room, the you know, sort of like formal semanticists might be dealing with the and will, um whereas the Lescal semanticists would deal primarily with dog and enter and room. And and then obviously one of the other things you said was structure. Right. So so who, who deals with structure and how does that relate to lexical semantics? I know we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, um, but is that more of in your domain or is that more of formal semantics or both? Well, I mean, structure, by structure, I mean syntax, right? Um, right. Syntax is kind of a, the thing that's abstract and it's a bit hard for people to don't have a background in linguistics to, to sort of understand. But um, particularly in generative grammar, we assume that uh, sentences are represented not only as strings of words, but strings of words that have some kind of hierarchical structure. And this hierarchical structure um, is, in some sense, the input to semantic representation. But I mean, just, you know, just think about it. Um, you know, the man chased the dog means something different from the dog chased the man, right? Even right. though we have the same words. Now, here you might say it's just the word order which is different, um, but that's because in English we lexically, we, we encode the notion of subject uh, in terms of word order and the notion of object in terms of word order, but in other languages, you know, that's done differently. Um, and in any event, you know, this is something technical and one needs to learn a lot of linguistics in order to understand this rather deeply, but um, the, the, the structure of the sentence is also, you know, the way the words combine with each other, the order in which they combine with each other is also very important. Now, I, I should point out that when we say that, um, you know, the formal semanticists will look at words like will or the, um, it, there's clearly interaction between the conceptual content of words like dog, enter, etc., and um, you know, the components that, that encode things like ten, uh, tense and aspect. And so, you know, in, in, in many ways, the lexical semanticist has to know a lot about syntax and semantics in order, because that's the, that's the aspect of lexical semantics which interests me most and in fact is I guess that leads my research agenda, and that is how the meanings of words interact with the more grammatical aspects of sentences. Right, right. And and we'll get to, to more of that um, later. So I, I think at this point, um, I'd like to just maybe try to introduce a few of these concepts. So, and you've written a lot on, you know, these kinds of topics. Um, one of the papers I found to be really helpful um, when I was just getting into this, the literature, is a paper you wrote with um, Beth Levine. And I think it's called Lexicalized Meaning and the Manner Result Complementarity. And in it, you go through some like pretty foundational um, 
concepts and terms and you you define them right and and it to me it seemed like they were also kind of like driving your agenda or like always in the background of okay this is how i'm approaching this source of lexical problems um so one of the one of the terms you you define is lexicalized meaning right um can you illustrate what this is what is lexical lexicalized meaning yeah so so you know when we listen when we hear a sentence right we understand many things right um and one of the things that interests the linguists is to figure out um what the contribution of the different components of the sentence are to the meaning of the whole and how do we represent the meaning of the whole now that's a technical question but we certainly have inferences that we can draw right so if i say the dog will enter the room it means that there is going to be an event which hasn't you know realized it hasn't been realized yet right that's in in the future etc so there are a lot of that that's an inference right so there are a lot of inferences that we draw when we hear a sentence um and you know the sentence doesn't wear on its sleeve you know in instructions how we derive the different uh, inferences that we make from uh, the sentences that we hear um and when i talk about lexicalized meaning i mean that sometimes there are inferences which we naively might think come from the meaning of the word but in fact if one looks at the different um uh appearances of a particular word in many different contexts and assuming which is a very big assumption right but it, let's assume it's a sort of an idealization that the meaning of the word remains constant in um different contexts um then we some what we find is that the source of the inference can't be traced directly to the word itself but rather to the surrounding context so uh, to gi- to give you an example if i say i cracked the egg i cracked the egg now by virtue of your knowledge of the meaning of the words but also by virtue of what you know about the world when i say i cracked the egg especially if there is no context right then you you know there's a certain image right which you conjure up um and so probably by default you'll assume right that um i'm doing something intentionally and you know that i did something to make a crack in the egg you may assume that i actually cracked the egg and then you know i had the contents of the egg except for the shell uh, put into a glass or some kind of container um and you may even conjure up a way in which i do did that um but in fact right if we look at crack in many different contexts we'll find that crack doesn't necessarily entail that there's um an intentional agent in fact there may not be an agent there may something may develop a crack without there being an agent right so when i say i crack the egg the fact that there was an agent there that doesn't come from the meaning of the word crack that comes from the fact that there's that there's uh, a, a first person pronoun there and because it's a first person pronoun we know that the subject of the sentence is um animate and 
human. And we typically attribute to humans intentional actions, right? But cracks can come about by accident and even people can produce cracks by accident, right? So um, when I look for the meaning that's lexicalized in a verb, I'm interested in sort of filtering out all of those um, inferences that are sometimes very, very, very common and so common that we tend to associate them with the word itself. And I'm interested in saying, well, no, let's try to get at what's really only associated with the word, in this particular case, the verb, because most of my work deals with uh, verbs. Um, you know, and, and then we can start looking at what the contribution of the verb is, what kinds of inferences come from many other things. Yeah, so, so it, it sounds like what you're trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is sort of take the interpretation that we get with a you know, sentence like, I crack the egg, and then, and then parse it in a way that um, makes sense of all of the uses of all the possible uses of crack, right? So, so when, when you're looking at a, a single sentence, like I crack the egg, right? You're, you're going to have all these inferences, but but in order to actually tell what contribution crack is making, you have to look at all the other ways it can be used and then go back to that one sentence and say, okay, you know, given all the other uses, this is the actual contribution in this context. Is that? Correct, that's, it. That, that's actually correct. And, and sometimes, you know, um, you know, sometimes what we're <laughs> what we're mostly interested in is, is figuring out what's not what inferences are not associated with the word rather than what are. And and, and sometimes you have to go to really strange and bizarre uh, contexts to see that a word can actually have a meaning, right? Um, which where a very common inference doesn't necessarily have to hold. Right, right. Yeah, so that's that's really helpful. So um, another, you know, part of your the title, right, is this manner result complementarity. Um, so what is the manner result complementarity hypothesis, um, which you and, and Beth um, argue for? And, and how might this be related to, um, you know, what we've talked about, the lexicalized meaning? Yeah, okay, so first of all, I want to stress that it's a, it's a hypothesis, right? Um, it may or may not be true. But it was based right, on an observation, right? So when we started many, many decades ago, right? decades ago, we started um, st intensively studying the lexicon of English. You know, since then, you know, the lexicons of many different languages have been studied very, very intensively. Um, but we started out with English. What we found was that there were certain patterns of you know, which semantic components typically find themselves together in, in a single verb. Um, so there are many senses which describe a change of a certain sort. Um, and in those sentences, we may have a description of the change, 
and also the manner in which the change comes about. So let me give you an example. So if I describe uh, myself making my way from one place to another, I can describe the change and that changes the fact that I am traversing a path to a different location. So I didn't go undergo a change in my internal constitution, but my location has changed, right? Um, and in order to describe the path of traversal, you know, I might say what direction I took. I entered the room. That means I started outside of the room and then I ended up inside the room. I exited the room. That means I started out inside the room and then I went out of the room. I arrived, I ascended, I descended, I went up, I went down, I approached, um, etc. But I also can describe how this change was brought about. So if we're talking about the locomotion of an agent, of, a, of, of, um, of an animate entity, right? Um, it may be through walking or climbing or skipping or hopping or driving or skiing. And there are in fact many other ways, manners of locomotion. Now, what's really striking is that when we look at classes of verbs of motion, and this is strikingly the case in all languages that we've looked at, either the verb describes the direction of motion. It may describe some other things like, you know, so enter means, you know, not only coming towards the goal, but also the goal of the path has to have some kind of internal structure. But in any event, the main thing that the verb does is it gives you uh, the nature of the path and it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything about the manner in which this was done. So if I arrived at the airport, I could have arrived by running, skipping, jumping, driving, cycling, etc. Um, and when the verb describes the manner of motion, it typically does not describe the direction of motion, right? So running can be up a hill, down a hill, into a room, out of the room. And we don't have different verbs for running into the room, running out of the room. Interestingly enough, the same dichotomy we find in other areas of the lexicon. And so just to give another example, when we look at verbs which describe change of the state, like break or crack or melt or freeze or heat or widen or clean, right? These are all verbs which talk about an entity undergoing a change of state. Well, that change of state may have happened spontaneously or it may have been brought about, right? So I, it, something can break, but I can break something. I can crack something. I can melt something. I can freeze something. I can widen something and I can clean something. But if I do that, right, I can do it by any means, right? And so, and, and, and once again, here's where, you know, you asked how, do, how does lexicalized meaning come, the notion of lexicalization come in here. So, when I say uh, I cleaned the counter, right, because of what we know about how, what a counter is, right, and, you know, our culture makes use of certain uh, uh, typical instruments for cleaning. Um, so we have a sense of how we clean the counter, 
if I say I cleaned the tub, we may think of a different activity or manner which brought it about. But in fact, the verb itself, and here I'm, here I'm going back to what I hinted at earlier, and I could say you sometimes have to go to you know, odd context to see what kinds of contexts it's able to still manage, right, to express what it wants to express. So I can say, I cleaned the tub by saying abracadabra. Now, you know, we know that this kind of event, unfortunately, right, <laughs> probably take place, right, in Never Never Land, right? But the verb actually doesn't care, right? The verb actually doesn't care. So clean only means come to be in a state of cleanliness. And of course, you have to understand what cleanliness means. It doesn't matter. But, but so, so, so the verbs that give us, that describe the state which changed, typically do not describe the means uh, uh, by which this change of state was brought about. That would be the manner, right? On the other hand, um, there are verbs which describe activities or manners, if you wish, which are prototypically brought about, uh, typically engaged in in order to bring about a change of state. But if the verb specifies the nature of the activity, we call this the manner, then the verb does not specify the change of state. So if I say I battered the window, right, you'll typically assume that the window broke, right? But I can say I battered the window and didn't break, right? Um, if I wipe the counter, you will typically infer that I wiped the counter and I made it either dry or clean, right? But it's okay to say, right, I wiped the counter, but it's as dirty as it was before, or it's as wet as it was before. Um, so, uh, or if I say, you know, the, the, the truck hit the window, <laughs> you may assume that the window broke because typically if a truck hits a window, a window will break, but the verb, right, specifies the manner, but it does not specify the change of state. And there's nothing wrong with saying the truck hit the window and nothing happened to the window, right? Now, I, let me just explain that if I say, you know, I widened the road, but the road didn't change in width, that is a contradiction, right? So verbs do indeed lexicalize certain things which cannot be contradicted. We say they can't be defeased, that they cannot be contradicted, but there are inferences which can be contradicted. And when these inferences, when we see that there, these are, that there are inferences which can be contradicted, we typically can assume, right, that those inferences do not come from meaning which is lexicalized in the word. Now, I mean, the fact of the matter is that linguistic reality is a lot more complicated than these uh, examples uh, lead us to believe. So, you know, the, man, the hypothesis of man and result complementarity is that there's this grammatical constraint, right, which should be evident in all languages, right? Um, and it says that, you know, we, we can 
we could put together meanings, but there are constraints on how we put together meanings. And we cannot lexicalize both manner and result together in the same, in the same verb, with the same minimal component of the verb. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit, uh, a little bit later, but the minimal component of the verb. Right, right. So let me just play devil's advocate a little bit here. So why not just say, like, if you take a minimal pair, like I wipe the table clean or, or sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I wipe the table or I clean the table, right? Why not say that wipe just means clean in, in a context with the table? Well, precisely because, I mean, you know, this may seem very, very, very obvious, right? But, you know, sometimes in linguistics, as in any other field, you know, uh, stating the obvious leads us to deep insights. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot say, I cleaned the table, but it didn't get any cleaner, right? But you can say, I wiped the table, but it didn't get any cleaner. And we have, you know, these are, these are very robust, um, these are very robust um, judgments that speakers have. And, and, and this is in spite of the fact, right, that when we hear a word like wipe, right, we know that in most contexts, the wiping will lead to cleanliness. Right? And nonetheless, we know that it's not a contradiction to say, you know, I let my husband wipe the table and well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's dirtier. Yeah. <laughs> right. Pro probably commonly said, actually. Um, yeah. So that's really helpful. So, so what I'm hearing on the how this relates to lexicalized meaning, right, is that the inference that you would get from I wipe the table of it being clean, right, is just not actually part of the meaning of the word wipe. So, so is it fair to say that then, like, you know, kind of our, our, sort of ground level, like first step into figuring out what, what a word means is, is categorizing it or a verb in particular, like into one of these sort of like more broader classes of, okay, you know, if, if you give me a random word in a, a random verb in a random language, right. I have to be able to see, okay, it patterns with these other verbs, right. Or these other verbs. Is that, is that fair as a uh, kind of like a, first step into, you know, how do I go about figuring out what it means? Yeah, well, you have to be really careful, right? You know, so so famously, people like Sapir and Worf said, don't take the expectations that you got from your language <laughs> and apply them when you're studying, um, you know, some completely unrelated, both aerially and um, and, and genetically language, because each language has its own internal logic, right? Um, and, you know, they had good reason to, to, to say that, uh, because, you know, in the late 19th century, in the, early, in the early 20th century, you know, people thought that all languages look more or less like... Um, like uh, European languages, and they also thought that European languages were, uh, because European culture was superior, right, uh, that other languages should look like uh, European languages. Uh, but we've sort of gotten over 
that uh, prejudice. And, and in fact, what we do find is, despite the fact that languages differ in amazing ways from one another, right? When you study the lexicon of a particular language very, very, very deeply, and then you study another, the lexicon of another language very, very deeply, and then the lexicon of another language, what you find is that the same sets of verbs, more or less, right, more or less, do seem to emerge. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a good rule of thumb to begin that way, but you really have to be careful because very often translation equivalents, right, do not have the same meanings. And sometimes the translation equivalents, which do not have the same meanings, um, are different just in ways which are grammatically relevant. I, I'm sorry that I don't have a, um, an example which sort of just pops out in, in, into my mind, but, but it's something that you have to really be careful about. Well, I even think about, you know, wipe and clean, right? If you're, if you're translating from another language and, you know, you have wipe the table, you could easily think, oh, this is clean the table, right? Because, you know, in a certain context, it could be very clear that the table is clean, right? And this is something that they do all the time. They wipe the table, it becomes clean, right? And so I could, I could imagine if you didn't know the language very well, right? Or if you didn't have a lot of data, you could just easily make that sort of jump, right? And then you obviously introduce all kinds of um, you know, it's a mistranslation, right? At the end of the day, and then, and then, you know, you would have a certain context where it just wouldn't make sense, right? Um, That's right. I mean, you know, so the basic methodology will be the same in all languages, right? Basic methodology will be the same, and 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 um, uh, because in all languages, right, we have, you know, the core meaning of a word, and then inferences that are derived by all sorts of modes of reasoning and these modes of reasoning are modes of reasoning which we attribute to you know how we humans think right and so those modes of reasoning should you know should in grosso modo be the same in uh, across languages now they may be different because there may be they may be different in certain aspects right because there may be all sorts of things like the you know grammatical system of the sense of, of the language may i mean for example there are languages in which, um, you know, in the perfect form, you can take the perfect form of a verb like burn and say, I burnt the book, but it didn't burn, hmm. right? Um, and it's not because the meaning of burn is any different in that language, but rather the perfective has a modalized uh, contribution to the sentence, which is not the case in English, right? Um, and, and so these are things that one has to be really, really careful about. Right, right. But it is the case for something like I am burning the book, which you can say about events that are pre-burning books, <laughs> right? That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, you know, linguists who are interested in this kind of stuff, especially the interaction between the contribution of the sort of the lexicalized meaning of a verb and you know, the contribution of um, grammatical aspect to the sentence, you know, one finds differences between languages, but one will often find that it's the same set of verbs, 
which show these properties in language after language. Right. So, so one one final question on on this paper. So you you mentioned that the manner result complementarity hypothesis is lexicalized in roots. Um, so can you just tell us like what is a root? I I think so. You know, there are going to be many people listening to this that are familiar with roots from Hebrew, right? And they'll know, oh, okay, roots. Hebrew has roots, right? Um, what what is it exactly? Is that something we find in other languages? And and what is special about a root? Well, you know, you can think of a root as the basic morpheme, right? That, that, do, do all your do all your listeners know what a morpheme is? Yeah, probably yes, a meaningful unit. It's just, right, the smallest. It, it, in some sense, it's the smallest meaningful unit, right? Um, what What's striking about about the Semitic languages is that you know a single root uh, can find itself in many different related words, where the what's semantically constant, right, is very abstract and very, very difficult to pin down, right? Um, but, but in a language like English, and you know, one could speculate why this is, what are the differences between languages? Uh, but in a language like English, you know, I can, I, can, um, you know, I can say that there are many different ways in which um, the verb break or the verb crack can be used. It can be used as a noun, it can be right. There is a crack in the um, in the vase. Um, it can be used as an adjective. This is uncrackable, right? Um, and then it can be used in many different ways as as as, as a verb. Um, and so, what we attribute to the root is what is constant in all of these um, appearances. Um, and so, when we speak about manners of complementarity. Um, and we say that it, it applies to the root. In English, that's not, um, you know, all that significant. But, you know, there are, it, it, saying that it applies to the root uh, gets very interesting confirmation in languages where, you know, it, to, to say something like, um, you know, I broke the stick, right? The verb break is really a bound morpheme but you can't use break, the minimal unit break on its own. It has to right, come with some other morpheme and that other morpheme has to say what you did in order to break whatever it is that you broke. So, you know, you can get something like um, hit break or drop break or, or, or whatever. You know, and the fact that in these languages you see that putting the manner and the result together, you need two different morphemes is in some sense, I don't know if it's a complete confirmation of the hypothesis, <laughs> because you know, there are a lot of people who don't who think that the hypothesis is wrong. I mean, this is you know, this is a hotly contested hypothesis, um, but it's one of these, you know, it's one of these hypotheses where the hot contestation, you know, leads to um, you know, leads to deeper understanding of uh, uh, of of the stuff that we're studying right right yeah that's good so at this point maybe we can talk about another um work you've done a book another book with beth levine argument realization um where you go through um 
really, it seemed to me like a, a, a survey of sorts, especially in the beginning. You know, it's a study all... book. It, it, it's a book that was meant. To, I, I think it's. I think it's a. I think it appears in a series of books called Research Surveys in Linguistics. There you go. So it was meant to be. It was meant to be a survey. So so you yeah you go through all these different theories. Um, so I think one one just kind of like right off the bat question would be, okay, so we have verbs, right? We, which we've been talking about a lot. Um, and then we have syntax, right? Um, and we talked about that at the beginning. I, I don't think it's obvious right at the outset, right? That if you ask someone on the street, like, okay, are, are uh, you know, is the order of words important for the meaning of verbs, right? Or something like that. They, they might say, Maybe, uh, yes. I mean, but they, they, they wouldn't really understand how, you know, um, syntax might relate to verbal meanings. So can you just tell us, like, what does syntax have to do with, with the meaning of a verb? And give an example. Yeah, so, I mean, this is actually, it's, it's, it's a complicated question to answer because one would like to give an answer that... Um, is applicable to all languages, and languages differ in 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 many different ways. But um, <laughs> think of think of a verb in the following way, right? A verb classifies different types of events. Okay, so there are lots of different types of events in the world, right? And the verb tells you what kind of event we're talking about, right? So um, and and. The nature of the one way of understanding what type of event we're talking about is understanding how many participants there are in that event. So take a common verb like eat, okay? So if I have in front of me a piece of pizza, right, I pick it up and then I do what most normal people do with pieces of pizza, right? I put it in my mouth, I chew on it, and then all sorts of interesting things happen once I swallow, etc. Um, now that there is a verb, right, which we can use in order to convey, right, a report of such an event. Uh, one such word is eat. There are other verbs like that, right? There's devour, there's gobble, there's nibble, etc. Um, but let's stay with eat because it's sort of a, a vanilla, <laughs> you know, type of uh, verb for for the set of events which we can call eating events. Um, and now, how do, we ex how do we use the verb in order to describe the scene that I, um, th that I, I, I just laid out? Well, I mean, it's so obvious to us that we don't even ask ourselves why this should be. But notice we say, Malka ate the pizza, right? We cannot say the pizza ate Malka, right? Now, why is that? What we one could right consider yourself, you know, you know, some kind of deity, right? And you're and you, and right now, you, what you want to do is engineer a language, or just consider yourself an engineer, right? Uh, and you want to engineer a language. You could come up, right? You could make up a word, let's call it yeet instead of eat, right? Which also describes 
some kind of animate entity ingesting uh, what is typically something edible. And in order to describe that, one would say, you know, the edible entity ate the eater, right? This is kind of hard for people to understand because it so much goes against the grain of our understanding about how language works. But I just described, right? I just described a hypothetical verb of, uh, um, with those characteristics. And what's amazing is that English has no verbs like that. Hebrew has no verbs like that. In fact, no language that we know of has a verb of this sort. So there's something about the meaning of eat and the nature of the way the different participants participate in the event of eating, which determines, right, that the eater participant, which we call the argument, the eater participant or argument will be expressed as the subject of the sentence and the thing eaten will be expressed as the object of the sentence. Now, I, I should point out that this is a rather abstract way of describing what's going on because how we encode subjecthood or objecthood right, varies greatly from language to language. You know, so, so in Latin, right, um, we'll identify the subject according to typically nominative case and the object according to typically, right, accusative case, but in any event, it'll be the case which will, um, uh, and, and the word order is just not interesting, right? You know, you can sort of just put the words into a, you know, into a box and, you know, like that and then roll them out and then put them in, in any order that you want, almost. Um, whereas in English, the notion of subjecthood and objecthood is determined by word order and there are languages that do it in all sorts of other ways like agreement or, or whatever. But right, if we abstract away from those differences, right, a verb like eat will always have the eater as the subject and the thing eaten as the object. And once again, this is so deeply ingrained in our nature, it's hard for us to, to ask why that should be. Right? But that's where the meanings of words are of verbs especially are important for determining the syntax of the clause that the verb appears in. And so also the number of noun phrases, right? The number of nouns that we find in a sense also in some sense determined by the meaning of the verb. So, um, you know, I can say time elapsed, but I won't say John elapsed time, right? Because elapse, just refers to the passage. It doesn't refer to this. There's no, there's no causation element in in, uh, or or take a, a verb like give. Give has, you know, not just a direct object, but it has an indirect object, and that's because, right? In order for an event to be an event of giving, it must have three participants. Now, the case of the verb give is interesting. Because in English, we have, right, so let me just back up and say, in order for a, an event to be an event of giving, it has to have three participants. How do we refer to these participants? We might say the agent, the thing given, and the recipient. The agent, once again, will always be the subject. But what about the thing given and the recipient? 
Well, in English, we have two ways of encoding that in uh, the syntax. We can say, John gave a book to Bill or John gave Bill a book, right? Those are two different sentence structures. Um, and lots of languages have more than one way of, of, of mapping, right? verbs of giving onto syntax. And once again, this is where it's really exciting when you look at your language and you find verbs of giving and verbs of actually transfer of possession. It's actually more abstract than that. Um, they often have more than one way of encoding their participants in the syntax. And then you say, wow, it's just amazing. There are lots of languages that have more than one way. And, you know, it's, rather surprising, I think, or it's, it's enlightening to find that, you know, languages spoken by cultures that are very, very, very different from one another share these very basic properties. So then, so then we have a verb like eat or give, right? And so basically what you're saying is that those verbs have, like, part of their meaning is to I don't know, put, place constraints, let's say, on the kind of participants or arguments that go along with them. Is that is that fair? So like if if the the sub like eat says subject has to have certain properties, right? It and the object has to have certain properties where and they can't they're not gonna be flipped in pretty much any language we know, right? Is that well, let me but let me just say let me just make clear. What eat says is that I have two arguments. One is, say, typically an agent. The other is something which has something happen to it. The verb eat doesn't have to dictate, right, that one argument is going to be the subject and the other argument is going to be the object. That is a property of the language as a whole. In fact, it's a property of language with a capital L as a whole. Okay? So once again, here we make the distinction between what is specific to a particular verb and what is more general to the language as a whole. Right, right. Okay. So, so we still, the, the, if we're trying to find a meaning of a verb, right, like eat, we still need to see, okay, I mean, you know, another, eat is a, an interesting example as well because you can also drop the object, right? You can drop the participant. I'm eating. You can say I ate, but notice, once again, here we make use of our inferences, right? Um, and if I ate, and it must be the case that there was something which I ate. Whereas say, take kick, right? I can kick the wall or I can just kick. And when I kick, it's not necessarily the case that my foot came into contact with anything. So sometimes we have an object which is optional, but it's still understood because it's necessary for the meaning of the verb. Whereas sometimes the optionality right, of the participant means that the participant doesn't necessarily have to be there uh, right. based on the meaning of the verb. And, right. and that's one, of the, and that's one of the things that when you know when you do your lexical semantics carefully, you have to be able to make a distinction between these two ways of uh, determining optional 
the appearance of the optional appearance of uh, participants. And so, and so, what you call these kinds of um, you know different syntactic patterns, right? Are argument alternations, right? So we can say, like, like going back to the give example, um, you know, give Bill a book or give a book to Bill. Um, so, so does that tell us something about like the meaning then? Like, what is the significance when you say, okay, a, ber- a verb behaves in this way, then, then what, if anything, can we conclude about, you know, the meaning? Can we con- conclude anything or is it just kind of, you know, well, just like anything else, you got to work really hard <laughs> in final conclusions. Because first of all, you know, different languages have different generalizations, which go uh, these things. So if I say that, you know, language after language, verbs of transfer possession um, show more than very, very often, very often show more than one um, option for the way they realize the participants in the syntax. Nonetheless, the actual rules which govern the way the participants can be realized um, syntactically vary uh, in very subtle ways from language to language. So you can't really jump to any conclusion right away, right? But, you know, when, when you, uh, uh, you know, as time goes on, I've been in this field for a long time, so when I look at the lexicon of a language that I'm not familiar with, I, I have a sense of what it is that I'll be looking for, right? but I can't jump to any conclusions right away, right? I, I can take what I know languages typically do as a guide, but languages differ in really surprising ways, you know, despite the fact that they're also, you know, it's sort of just like the faces of people, right? You know, they're different in surprising ways, just the fact that, you know, everybody is different and, you know, there's so many people in the world and they still, they're all different, but nonetheless, at some level, they all have something in common and, you know, very, very basic things in common. And the same, the same is true, you know, with, with languages and the properties of corresponding verbs in, in different languages. Right. Well, I even think about, you know, kind of what we've talked about, it, take a verb like like give, right? And it has these three participants. And we can say that, okay, in, in another language, we can find another verb with three participants that has transfer of possession. But then we'd have to look at each of the, you know, um, the elements of the syntax, right? So to in, in English means something, right? That might be subtly different you know, give the book to someone might be slightly different than the, the you know, closest equivalent in another language, right? And then... Yeah, well, you know, even if, 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 um, if, if you look at the Hebrew, right, the Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew um, verb which corresponds to give, which most people think to be Natan, right? Um, it has very different properties from give. It, yeah. it, it has a wider range of meanings than give, right? So it, it can be... It can talk about transfer of possession, but it could just talk about, it could be a, just a verb of putting, and it could also be a verb of causation. Uh, where even in English, give, and, and this is, by the way, very common in, in languages that a verb like give also has a, uh, a causation element, just like, just think, of it, think of in English when, when you say, that gives me a headache, right? <laughs> right? Um, that sort of means that it causes, you know, 
causes uh, a headache uh, in me. Um, so, so you you really have to be careful, right? So the you know you look at the translation equivalent of give in a language like Hebrew, right? It'll have certain um, it'll have certain commonalities, but you can't take everything for granted, right? Right, right. So I just want to maybe ask a few wrap up questions here. Now that we're on the topic of biblical Hebrew, um, so when when you want to know so we talked about a lot of different things right um we've talked about lexicalized meaning you know dividing verbs up into classes let's say into manner or result or change um when you want to know the meaning of a verb you take you know a, a random verb in in biblical hebrew like natan what do you do to to analyze it how, how do you go about like what's your first step in figuring out what it's doing i should say that there are real constraints in how far you can get uh, in doing lexical semantic analysis in a language like biblical Hebrew, not only because it's no longer spoken, and in just a minute I'll say what the ramifications of that um, are, uh, but also because the corpus isn't all that large, right? So, you know, if, if you compare it with, say, Latin, which is also no longer spoken, right? There are no native speakers of Latin, um, nonetheless, the corpus is much, 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 much larger. And so for any given verb, you'll find many, many, many more examples right, of, uh, of use. And, and much of biblical Hebrew is, is lyrical. And we know that, you know, when, when people compose lyrics, they often, you know, massage both the meaning and the syntax in, in, in ways. And so it, it, sometimes it's hard to uh, draw conclusions on the basis of the lyrical parts. Um, and, and so notice part of the methodology that I spoke about was, um, you know, uh, engaging in introspection with respect to the inferences that we can draw by the use of a word. And, you know, you can't do that to a language which has no native speakers. Right? You know, even if you go out into the bush, right, and you start working on a language which has only few speakers, you can still plumb the depths of the intuitions of those speakers, but you can't do that, right? You can't do that in a language which has no native speakers. And, you know, the fact that, um, the, fact that uh, the corpus is not all that large really places very strict limitations. That being said, right? That being said, um, you know, you uh, basically you go about studying, um, you know, the or, or doing lexical semantic analysis in biblical Hebrew the way you would do it in for any other language within those constraints. And those constraints are, you know, they're they're not negligible, right? They're not negligible. I mean, so so, you know. Uh, Sometimes you, you may come across a, you know, a hypothesis about a, what, what a particular word might mean, right, in order to be able to understand its syntax. And you say, well, I, gosh, I wish I knew what happens with this verb in such and such a context. And what can you do? If you're a native speaker or if you have a native speaker, you can construct the context which would help you decide 
what it is that you, you know, what, what you think the correct analysis is, and you can't do that with, with the label. Right. So you basically, you know, going back to our, I think our first example <laughs> with wiping the table, um, you know, we have this inference of, of it being clean. Um, so when, if we have that sort of event in biblical Hebrew and we have no context, you know, in which the table is wiped and the table does not become clean, the, the question is, how can we or can we at all, um, you know, say that this is a, a manner verb, right, that that lesicalizes, you know, just the wiping motion and not the cleaning, right? Is that that kind of the idea? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a constraint, right? That's a constraint. And, you know, and, and you have to realize that there are some verbs that are very, very common, right? And there are a lot of uses, right? But then there are verbs that only have very few appearances, right? right? So, so, I mean, you know, I did some work on verbs of manner of motion, and there are verbs of manner of motion in biblical Hebrew, but um, some of them are used, you know, very, very scarcely, you know, you know, how many times do you do you have this? Not, 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 not very often. Um, and and as, especially since we have modern Hebrew now, right? Speakers of modern Hebrew sometimes, you know, uh, see modern Hebrew in biblical Hebrew, and and that's probably not the right way. <laughs> <laughs> of course you know we, we we would also have the temptation to see english in in biblical hebrew right just because or whatever native speaker well i mean um, you know when i look at biblical hebrew, i very often look at at um at, at, you know translations like the king james version etc and 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 those are often helpful often very very helpful and I think for good reason, because, you know, they come from traditions of translation, you know, and, and, and when you're part of a tradition, I mean, the tra tradition may be wrong, right? But these traditions come from kind of, you know, transmission, which ultimately goes back to a time when the translators were perhaps native speakers of Hebrew or worked with native speakers of Hebrew. And so, so, so these, these trans, translations are often um are often very helpful right right and that's obviously you know the the septuagint the the greek translation is obviously huge there i mean we have a much bigger greek corpus than we do hebrew so that that could be a a way into some of these problems um so just as a as a final question just fun um to give people a little idea of you know what a lexical semanticist does um so what kind of problems are you working on today in in your field that's just interests you well actually i'm working on a problem in biblical hebrew and that is um you know this what's called the halo cow um which is actually turning out to be extremely interesting and extremely challenging um but uh more generally uh, you know, I've devoted a lot of uh, um, a lot of research to mm, verbs which participate in another kind of argument alternation, uh, which we call the causative alternation. So, you know, the vase broke, I broke the vase, um, and or take you know um, the workers widened the road and the road widened, or 
um, <coughs> I narrowed the skirt, right? And so for, for many, 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 many years, people um, thought that um, these verbs always describe changes of state. And so they're invented. They always describe something which actually happens. There's some change in time, change in time. And then it, it turned out that, um, you know, many of these verbs have other meanings where they don't really describe a dynamic change in time. They do describe a change, but perhaps along some other axis. And the most obvious, there are, there are lots of other axes, but the most obvious is, say, a spatial axis. So you could talk about the river narrowing, you know, further south, or your skirt narrowing at the bottom, right? The crack widening um, towards the ceiling. Um, and many verbs that participate in the um, causative alternation show this kind of, it, it's a kind of polysemy, right? It's, it's a kind of polysemy. Um, you know, if you, what linguists like to do is to say, no, it's not polysemous. Right? We don't have lots of different meanings. We have one more abstract meaning from which the, you know, eventive and the non-eventive uh, meanings are derived. And then I discovered, and this was really a discovery of mine because I don't think anybody's ever discussed this, that there are verbs that participate in the cause of alternation that do not show this, um, uh, uh, this ambiguity or this polysemy. Um, and these are verbs that, that, that are like, that describe states like cover. So, um, you know, you, you, you can't say um, the cloth covers the couch towards the end, meaning it covers more of the couch on the left end, right? Um, and that on the face of it is rather surprising given the analyses that people have had. And so, you know, what, what, what does the lexical semanticist do? What are the verbs that work like narrow and widen? What are the verbs that work like cover? Let's map it out. Let's try to see semantically what they have in common and then try to come up with an explanation. And that's, uh, that's the puzzle that I'm working on now. Well, I'll be looking forward to reading about it when you solve it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I actually have a paper which I can send to you. Great. <laughs> it offers something of a solution. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'll, in all my spare time, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. So that's all we have uh, time for in this episode of the Biblical Languages podcast. Thank you, Malka, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>